But I'm going to dive right in because I'm engaged this morning in the simple task of talking about what Jesus did, why, and how. So don't be nervous. We'll be done by the end of the morning. Um, I'm going to start with a description from the Gospel of Luke. He begins the story of the life of Jesus, describing the dramatic circumstances with some meaning-making of the birth of Jesus. Then he talks about the uh, blessing of Jesus by God through baptism, a statement of affirmation. Jesus experiences some temptations of a kind that he'll experience across the course of his life through a figure described as Satan. And then he comes and gives his first inaugural message in the context of human beings. <laughs> and it goes like this. So this is from Luke chapter 5. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as he was accustomed to do, he entered the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath and stood up to read. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And having opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written, A spirit of the Lord is upon me. Hence, God has anointed me to announce good tidings to the destitute. And God has sent me out to proclaim release to captives and sight to the blind, to send the downtrodden forth in liberty, to proclaim the Lord's acceptable year. And having closed the scroll and returning it to the attendant, he sat. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were gazing at him, and he began by saying to them, Today, in your ears, this scripture has been fulfilled. And all professed their admiration for him and were amazed at the words of grace coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this man not Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote me this parable, Physician, heal yourself. The things we heard were happening, happening in Capernaum. Do them here as well, in your home country. And he said, Amen, I tell you. No prophet is accepted in his own country. And I tell you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was sealed up for over three and a half years as a great famine took place over all the land. And to none of them was Elijah sent except to a widowed woman of Sarepta in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. <laughs> and all in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. And rising up, they drove Jesus outside the city and led him to the edge of the mountain on which their city was built so as to throw him down. But he passed through their midst and went away. Now, I'm not hoping to replicate that this morning. <laughs> but it's quite a remarkable launching message on the part of Jesus. Apparently, he's doing something that he has, you know, been known to do in his hometown. Takes the scroll for the morning, reads it, talks about it a little bit. But this time, it's different. <laughs> My experience across... Uh, my understanding of Jesus, my learning about Jesus, this is often presented as kind of 
his launching message where he picks up this idea from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, and says, this is what I'm about. This passage from Isaiah, it's kind of passionate and impressive and admirable. And so that's what Jesus does. And the people say, oh, that's really nice. He's a good speaker. Isn't that impressive? But isn't he one of us? And then Jesus heads in this really strange direction that produces a kind of puzzling outcome. I think a part of what we miss when we hear this is that beyond it being just hmm, an impressive sentiment or an admirable sentiment on the part of Jesus, he is advocating for two things, for an overturning of social order in a way that would be pretty destabilizing, freeing captives, funding the destitute, right? That doesn't happen without shaking up things as they are. And Jesus is also saying something that's kind of an implication to the people in the room, to the general world around him. This has been a sentiment of God, a mission of God, since God spoke these words, and it hasn't happened yet. Jesus would understand that destitution, captivity, the need for liberation is a product of a system. It's not that there are some bad people who we need to contain or control. It's that our system has produced destitution. In the day of Jesus, Jesus grew up as a Galilean peasant. It's estimated that in that region, in that group of people, probably between 20 and 30% of people would have experienced true destitution, just abject poverty, no money, so that their indebtedness produced a class of profession known as a bandit. Just a lot of people took up banditry as a profession. And some of them were caught, made captives, put in prison. So Jesus has an understanding as he's talking to the people in the room, we all inhabit together a pretty flawed, nefarious system. Some of us are victims of it, but a lot of us participate in it. So it's, in a sense, a polemic by Jesus as he puts this thing forward. God has wanted to do something and has been wanting to do something for a long time, and it hasn't happened yet. And none of us in the room are doing anything about it until now. And so then, then the room responds as power does. I had this experience... Uh, I'm just saying 10 years ago, because anything more than five years ago is just a while ago. <clears throat> um, I was invited by my father to go speak to a group of retired people in my hometown about my medical, uh, uh, medical research. And so I thought, oh, what a lovely invitation. This group of people who my father and mother know, many of whom I would have known, some of whom I would have grown up with in that culture, in that place. Won't it be nice to go as who I am now and be recognized and I'll say something impressive and they will admire me? 
and they'll sort of receive me, and I want also to go and honor my dad. I want my dad to feel good about having invited me and people to like, oh, your son spoke so well today. So I prepare, and I go, and I give my talk, and it's well-received. But I was not unambivalent, because my growing up place was very religious. I was formed by the religion of that place, and many of the people in the room to whom I was speaking would have inhabited that religion, loved that religion, perpetuated that religion, But that specific practice or form of Christianity had become deeply troubling to me over time. I had become aware of flaws in the belief system that produced a whole bunch of stuff from which I had spent decades trying to escape, trying to emerge from, trying to leave behind. It had produced harm. In the religious setting, those kinds of beliefs packaged in my growing up culture, it had produced harm to thousands, probably millions of people across the century, and a lot of harm to me. It had funded my therapist for an extended period of time. And so I went into that space with that awareness, like, I really want them to like me, but oh man, there's a lot in that room that still exists in that room, that has been harmful to me and to many people like me trying to make their way forward with God. (laughs) But what I did that's different than what Jesus did is I received it. I received the accolades. Oh, that was a nice talk. Thank you. I felt what was going on was not just them saying, that was really nice, but that was really nice coming from one of us, right? You're one of us. We like the way you said that. We like who you are as one of us. All the time I'm thinking, I am not anymore. I am not one of you. I do not think what you do anymore, but I hear how important it is for you to believe that I do. And so what I did is I just ranted to my wife on the way home in the car, (laughs) right? Oh, that was weird and difficult, and I felt myself being taken on by them in a way that I don't feel good about as we're driving home. The difference with Jesus is he said what he wanted to say to the people in the room, right? We make this whole thing of Jesus about the first part, putting on display this statement from Isaiah, that's me, woo, let's go forward, I don't think so. I think that was the intro to what Jesus wanted to say. He came into that room knowing what he wanted to say to the people in the room about them and about their system. I would always look at this thing and say, Jesus, were you just caught by surprise? Like by their response when they, you know, do this little cocooning, that was really nice, but aren't you one of us? Aren't you feeling a little bit expansive beyond your identity? You're just the son of a carpenter after all. Like, were you caught by surprise by that, Jesus? And I think Jesus would say, no. That's what I wanted to say to them. I knew what was going on in the room. I understood that system and how it worked to suppress voices I understood the specialness that they thought they inhabited that gave them an in with God. 
that gave them privileged standing, that produced disparities in power, that produced captives, that produced destitution. And that's what I wanted to say to them. (laughs) And then he gets the response that he probably anticipated, which we all know. Right? I mean, think about it. So if you were to pick a setting, let's say a group of people, family, workplace, an ethnic-based group of people, a gender-based group of people, a state-based group of people, a city-based group of people, who knows, whatever, where you wanted to go in and say to them the truth about them, specifically as it relates to power. This is where you're missing it with power, with structuring. This is where you're missing it with beliefs, with practices. I want you to hear me, right? The reason we don't do that is because we know the response that we'll get. None of us do that. Or if we want to do an intervention, we plan it for months. And then we work it out with our friends or our counselor or in prayer for months and months afterwards because of how much it discombobulates us. We know the rage that we will produce in a system if we tell the people in the system the truth about themselves. And so I think that's what happens with Jesus. He is not surprised when he says what he wants to say and the people turn and want to kill him. I think Jesus says, okay, I've done my work here. Right? This is what I know is in it, in the system. And when I have provoked the response of murderous rage, I know the people have heard what I wanted to say. And, (laughs) And it's time to slip away. Right? And this is a pattern. Like, this is not a one off for Jesus. If you follow him, Every single encounter, every single conversation produces this. He comes into a setting where he perceives an inhabiting of a power structure that is nefarious, that produces villains, that produces destitution, that produces captivity. And he names it intentionally. with malice aforethought, right? None of it is a surprise. None of it comes by chance or, whoa, what's going on here? It is the intention of Jesus with every single system he comes into to name to the system itself, to reveal it to itself. So whether it's a family-based system, a religious-based system, an ethnic-based system, He talks about the power structures themselves. He talks about the beliefs that support the power structures, your beliefs about sin, sinfulness, and badness. What makes a person good? What makes a person acceptable? How you produce villains? What villains really are? Just again and again and again. My first question when I watch it play out is why? Jesus, why are you doing this? It's miserable, and it's hard, and it's relentlessly conflictual and oppositional. And you are repeatedly encountering the murderous rage in these systems when this happens, when a system sees itself. It's like, ah, 
Don't show us to ourselves. Why are you doing this? And I think the answer is in his opening Isaiah quote, Jesus is just deeply compelled by the victims of our systems. He really cares about the destitute and the captives, those who need liberation. This is where his heart goes. I think he sees it in God. His perception is that God, too, this is God's, where God's attention is fixed. God's compassion is activated, and Jesus is compelled. He is willingly taken over by this agenda. But then I also have the wondering, how? Like, how do you do this, Jesus? How do you specifically, not just, not just how do you do this? Because, you know, some of us are really good at ranting, right? That's not a hard thing to do. It's not a hard thing to rail against whoever we want to rail against. And, ah, oh, decry, this is bad, you're bad, you're really, you know. Like, that is a thing some of us enjoy. It's kind of fun sometimes to be a ranter and a railer and rrr. But what Jesus does, <laughs> if it's just ranting, we are able to dismiss it. We're able to put it off to the side, even if there's some truth in a sort of unbridled ranting. We can, oh, we can push that to the side. Jesus does not seem to be someone who could be ignored in that way. People pay attention, maybe in part because of the things he does that seem to indicate that God is behind him. But I think there is also a way where Jesus hangs on to his soul. He does not get taken over by rage. He does not get taken over by vengefulness, by the activity of decrying. He continues to be a person in the midst of all of this, of love, generosity, kindness, goodness. So here's story number two. This is from Luke chapter 11. It happened that as Jesus was praying, when he finished, a certain one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John 2 taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, loving parent, let your name be esteemed. Let your sphere of influence expand. Give me just enough bread for the day ahead and release me from my debts, for I now release all who are indebted to me and do not bring me to trial. And Jesus said to them, Among you, what one would have a friend and would come to that friend at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread since a friend of mine has just visited me from the road and I have nothing I might set before them. And the one inside would say in response, Do not present me with difficulties. The door has already been closed and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even if your friend will not rise and give it to you because they are your friend, still on account of your persistence, your friend will rise and give you whatever you need. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone asking receives. And the one seeking finds. And to the one knocking, it will be opened. And what parent among you, if your daughter will ask for a fish, will hand her a snake instead of a fish? 
Or again, if your son will ask for an egg, <laughs> a strange request from a son, <clears throat> or again, if your son will ask for an egg, will instead hand him a scorpion. If therefore you, being wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, <laughs> how much more will your loving parent from heaven give a Holy Spirit to those who ask? <laughs> right? None of us escape unscathed from the instructions of Jesus. We're all wicked. But I picture the disciples watching Jesus. They would have the same questions we do as he's doing this person after person, group after group, setting after setting. Why do you do this, Jesus? But even more deeply, how do you maintain your sense of self? How do you hold it together? How do you continue to be a good person with this as the mission to which you seem to be so deeply committed? And maybe they watch him. <laughs> they see him riled up, heading off to his time of prayer, and he comes back pretty good comes back with equanimity, with peacefulness, with calmness, with resolve, but also with love. And they say to him, you know, in this whole discipleship training school, we're, we're feeling a little bit uh, gypped right now because we see everybody else getting training in prayer, but you haven't done that for us yet. And it seems to be an important component of how you do what you do. So one of them says, would you please teach us to pray? And, and Jesus teaches them to pray. I imagine them being at first a little bit puzzled because there are a lot of forms of prayer, but none of them would have been as simple as what Jesus gives them, nor as unself-focused. Right? Jesus says, okay, here, try this. It's a few short words, and the sentiments are so simple. Right? It starts out by saying, the focus is God. I want, at the end of the day, God, your name to be the one that's respected, revered, admired, held in high esteem. I want your sphere of influence, not mine, not my way of doing things. I want your way of doing things to be what happens here. All I'm asking for me is what I need to get me through the day, the basics. And then in terms of my interaction with people, God, would you please help me to become disentangled from the systems of harm, power, vengeance, retribution, grudges, all the ways in which we become indebted to each other. I'm releasing everybody from the debts they owe me would you please be a part of me being released from those debts? Now, what we take that to be is the thing. That's what God gives us, the Lord's Prayer. I think, rather, it is a framing for what comes next. It is not the end. What Jesus is saying is, if you engage in this framework, it will put you in the right state of mind so that you can ask so that you can press in, so that you can go after what you need, what I need to keep me true to this mission, which at the end of the day is not riches, is not wealth, is not a pink Cadillac, right? Jesus is not saying if you asked for a pink Cadillac and you haven't gotten one, it's because you haven't asked hard enough. What Jesus is asking for and what he is instructing his followers to ask, to seek, to knock for is the Spirit of God. 
Jesus begins the, the, the passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of God is on me to do these things. And what Jesus says is, I need that Spirit in me. This is the Spirit that Jesus calls the Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the one who brings God's wisdom and insight, who brings into his mind the thoughts of God, who brings into his being the presence of God, the equanimity, the peacefulness. Jesus is saying, the way I pull this off is by having the Spirit of God come into me again and again and again. And that's what I am inviting you into that if you will bring yourself into a right frame of mind, God first, my needs are simple, extract me from all the fraughtness of human indebtedness, and then God, give me your spirit. I ask for it. I seek it. I want to remove the impediments that keep me from getting to it. And I am going to keep asking. I am going to be persistent. I'm going to go after it again and again and again until I get it. I've tried it this week because I knew I was going to be talking about it. And it's not that I'm new to prayer. I, you know, I, I pray regularly. I have various forms of prayer. But I felt stirred by this specific connection. Like, oh man, there are ways that I am actively involved in systems that are harmful that, you know, this everywhere, like all our systems, produce harm and victims and villains and all of it. I want to be a part of reversing that, naming it, producing something else in its place. But to stay true to that while hanging on to my soul, either not being co-opted by the system, not becoming just rageful against the system. Oh, man. Do I need your spirit, Jesus? Do I need the spirit of God coming to me? I, you know, I have read through, I have done the, the Lord's Prayer as Jesus presented here in this really simple form, and then I start to engage with seeking, with asking, with knocking, and I find right there my own fraughtness, my own fearfulness, my own ragefulness, my own distractions just accessing that presence of God that I really believe is there to help me, it's a struggle. I understand the instructions of Jesus to persist, to keep going at it. And I also understand the beneficialness to the degree that you are willing to engage in this kind of mission, that we as a faith community here are engaged in this kind of mission, in this kind of endeavor. We need the Spirit of God to fill us, to help us cling to our own souls as we move forward together. So that's the invitation. The band can come forward and prepare for the next part of the service. I'm just going to pray, and then we'll shift to communion and to worship together. So Jesus, uh, I am compelled by your mission I desire for me and for all of us in the room to be more captivated by it, committed to it. To really give ourselves to the destitute, the captives, to producing systems that do not produce that, 
that produce blessing and benefit for everybody. But I pray for all of us that we would have that awareness of, of your spirit close by, your spirit here to help us, here to come into us, an entity that we can experience that can just bring us equanimity, peacefulness, resolve through and through, that can produce cleansing and life. I pray that we would all have a vision of that. And I thank you, Jesus, for giving simple instructions for <laughs> helping us to come into contact with the Spirit of God. Amen.